We are in the middle of a series called The Seven Marks of a Beautiful Church. Uh, The first three were about Christian discipleship and the what a church should be doing. We talked about mission, uh, or we talked about worship, which we're doing now. But this is where God comes and meets us and refreshes us and changes us into who we truly are through his word, through his spirit, through the sacraments. We talked about uh, spiritual formation, how God equips us in the knowledge of him so that we can then go out into mission in the world. And now we're in the set part of the, ser- part of the, the series where we're talking about not the what is the church supposed to do anymore, but the how is the church supposed to do it. Last week, we talked about a concept called beautiful orthodoxy, which is almost an umbrella phrase for everything that we're trying to do at ResPres. The how is that we hold on to orthodoxy, but we present it to the world in a beautiful way. And now, I think these next three sermons are really kind of definitions or, or filling out the idea of what a beautiful orthodoxy looks like. And so today we're going to talk about culturally legible, meaning, uh, meaning that we have been called to a specific place and time, and we have been given the mission uh, to preach the gospel and to teach the Bible Uh, in a way that's understandable to the people that we're trying to reach but without compromising any of its its substance. And so I'm going to read two scriptures today, one from uh, Acts chapter 17, which shows Paul in action uh, doing these things. And then I'm going to read a passage from 1 Corinthians, which gives us an insight into the attitudes uh, that Paul had behind why he acted that way in different cultural situations. So let's... If you would please stand as we uh, listen intently together to the reading of God's word. This is, we're going to start with Acts chapter 17, 22 through 34. This is God's inerrant word. Uh, and so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, this is uh, the, the collection of philosophers in the city of Athens, the secular non-Christian philosophers. Uh, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. And what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that he is div- that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. On the times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, 
we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areogopite and a woman named Demaris and others with them. Now this is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19 through... I'm just going to read through 23, not through 27. Uh, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. And I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. <clears throat> I am I'm old enough to remember the Sears catalog. I don't know if anybody even knows what that is anymore. Uh, but the Sears catalog it used to be this giant book full of wonder. This thick catalog that would come in the mail to us. It was just like this almost unlimited amount of stuff that you could look through and buy. And I remember distinctly like begging my parents for some camping trip or whatever. I'd found something in there after spending hours like leafing through this catalog asking my parents to buy something for me for whatever it was. At the time, there was a time, there was a time when Sears was the biggest retailer in the world. They were indestructible. Their catalog was a household item. Everybody looked to Sears for stuff that they needed. And uh, it was, if you'd had looked at it at the time in the early 20th centuries, it just seemed like Sears was, was undefeatable. And yet, not long ago, Sears filed for bankruptcy. Why? What happened? The internet happened. The internet happened. <clears throat> at first, I remember the first time I bought something on the internet. It was sketchy. I was like, uh, I don't know if I'm going to give my credit card numbers. Over. Who's going to... It's like giving my credit card to everybody in the universe is what it felt like. But over time, people got used to that and people understood security measures and all, not, not long, very quickly, buying things online became the norm. And what happened was the way that Sears, uh, <clears throat> Sears wasn't able to change how it intersected with the world. Not change what Sears did, not change with what Sears sold or what they were presenting, but they weren't able to keep up with how it intersected with the world. The culture around them changed and they got stuck holding this big paper catalog next to Amazon. <laughs> and they went out of business. Sears withered and died. The same thing, in a different way, a smaller way, but in the same kind of way can happen to churches. Just like big retail companies can get stuck in the way they did things from the 19th century, churches can get stuck in the way we've done things in the 19th century just the same. Uh, For extreme example, extreme example, if you've ever seen have you ever seen the cardinal of colleges in the Roman Catholic Church when they get together and the red 
clothing that they wear, the, the outfits and the robes and the hats and the pope with the hat that he wears, those are all, uh, that's, that's royal court attire from the Middle Ages. What, they're, what you're seeing is like a real-life enactment of, of, of culture from the Middle Ages that they are still like hanging on to. In, just until 1965, if you went to a Roman church service, it was in ecclesiastical Latin, and the priest was at his back to you the whole time, and uh, nobody knew, nobody had a clue what was going on. It was so disconnected from culture that you had to, you had to be educated, you had to be, go under this steep learning curve in order to understand what was going on and be able to participate, which excluded a lot of people from being able to know what was going on. Uh, Closer to home, Calvary Chapel. Unprecedented evangelistic success. Calvary Chapel in our lifetimes, maybe outside of Billy Graham, Calvary Chapel is probably responsible for more adult conversions than any other single church over the last 40, 50, 60 years. There was a period of time when Chuck Smith was baptizing a thousand people a day in the Colorado River. And they felt a, a model of interacting with the world that was, very, uh, that was very, very informal and very relaxed, that it worked amazing for that culture and that time in the early 70s. But as time has worn on and things have changed and culture has changed, that model is starting, it starts to feel different and it's not as effective anymore. And even people, uh, that, boomers who grew up in that are... are may still love it because they're on the inside and they get it. They're the insiders. But younger people coming into it, it's different. It's hard. Uh, It doesn't offer as rich a faith as people want. There's a sweet spot. There's a sweet spot in the middle of, 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 of upholding uh, some of the beautiful traditions of the church that we derive from the Bible, but also making it accessible to culture. There's a sweet spot between formalism on one side uh, and being hyper-contemporary on the other. And to hit that, the church is called to contextualize. That's the fancy word for it. That means that we take truth, we don't... uh, we don't take its substance away, but we make that truth. We figure out how can we, how can we best make this understandable to the culture that we are in and how can we, without sacrificing any truth or any doctrine or any biblical doctrines, how do we make, how can we intersect with the culture that we have to make the gospel legible to the people that we're called to minister to? It's a hard balance a hard balance to strike because it's so easy to go too far and compromise. It's also, uh, but it's also easy uh, to go the other direction uh, and not uh, and compromise in in our in in our own traditions, in our own culture, and get wrapped up in that. And so the church is called the church is called to contextualize, which means to intersect the faith with our culture and make it legible, but to do that without compromise, without allowing our culture to change the faith and practice of the church. And so the big idea that I'm going to present today from these two passages is just that, that without compromise, 
the church is called to contextualize the gospel to our culture because that's what Jesus has done for us. Without compromise, the church is called to contextualize the gospel to our culture because that is what Jesus has done for us. Let's look at the first part. Without compromise. When we talk about when we talk about this, when we talk about contextualizing the faith to our culture, one of the immediate red flags goes up, what people get skittish about is they think, well, that means compromising. You're going to compromise truth or somehow uh, you know, soften truth or get rid of those things that are not uh, culturally acceptable in order to present the gospel. You're going to compromise rather than contextualize. And so let's talk about that first. We cannot compromise truth to facilitate cultural sensibilities. We cannot. Let me tell you, let me give you two examples. Uh, there was a guy named uh, Donald McGarvin who was a, grew up, his parents were Indian, uh, missionaries to India, uh, and he came up with this system of determining, of being super rigorous about determining what worked and what didn't work in church ministries. When they planted churches in India or other places, he would uh, systematize things so he could figure out, does this produce fruit, does it not? And he came up with this rigorous system of excising everything that didn't work and, 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 and emphasizing everything that did work. He had a very pragmatic approach to ministry. And those ideas kind of slowly over time produced what was called the church growth movement in the United States. There was a, a school that was set up at a big seminary called Church Growth Movement. And the whole focus was on, how, it was so hard on how do we get people to come to church on Sundays that they started doing things like polling people to see what their felt needs were and what, how the church could address the problems that they were having. And then they began to shape the Sunday messages around those, those felt needs of problems in life. Uh, and then they began to, the way they did worship in, in and of itself began to uh, be more about making, it, uh, making it, uh, it comfortable and understandable for people to come into. So it was more like a secular environment. Uh, and before long, what happened was the whole Sunday morning worship service became all about reaching people from the outside. It became an evangelistic event. It became a tent revival. And in the process of that, of that good desire to figure out how to get more people into church, they, they tossed out 2,000 years of wisdom about how God has told us to worship. They tossed out the ideas that, that God has shown us in the text about how to worship him, how to approach him. They tossed out the idea that worship is, is primarily about God speaking to his people and his people responding in worship. They threw out uh, all of these ideas that, made, that really made worship rich and changed worship fundamentally from being about God's people coming into the presence of God, worshiping him and receiving blessing and strength and grace from him into just evangelism. And they lost. They lost all of that. In the midst of that, the desire to reach culture that changed how they read scripture. Here's a more, a more difficult, more, more controversial. Uh, 
there's probably been nothing in, in our lifetimes that has been more successful secularly than the gay rights movement, from Stonewall riots uh, to uh, legislative battles in, in, that began in Colorado in 1995 to the passing of Obergefell. Gay marriage became the law of the land. The, the, the speed uh, at which uh, gay marriage was passed and the gay rights movement played out in culture has been astonishing. Uh, it's like lightning. Uh, and more than that, because of that, it hits home for so, it has hit home for so many people personally. So many people personally have friends and relatives that are in the LGBT community and are forced, uh, are forced to face, face to face with someone that you love. Figure this out. There's a man named John Brownstone. He's a, a, a reformed minister from, in the Reformed Church of America and a theologian. Uh, he wrote a book called Bible, Bible, Gender, and Sexuality, which is probably the best conservative defense for accepting gay marriage in the church. And in the introduction to that book, listen to what he says. It's super telling. He says this, five years before I began writing this book, I had already been engaged in the study of the issues related to homosexuality, and I had done some teaching and writing on the subject. At the time, I took a moderate traditionalist position on the issues. But then something happened that altered my life in major ways. My 18-year-old son told me and my wife that he believed he was gay. And I didn't change my mind right away. I told my son there were many things that I didn't understand and that I was going to have to do a lot more thinking and praying and studying. And then slowly, over several years, along with many conversations with my son, my wife, and many others, I returned to the literature to try to sort out the issues more deeply to determine how we could best support and encourage our son. And the, the result of that was this, his book, Bible, Gender, and Sexuality. Uh, and in the course of his study prior to his son coming to him and after his son coming to him the scripture didn't change what the scripture said didn't change what changed was his his emotional the depth of his emotional concern and love for his son and so we went back to the scriptures with that deep seated desire to make them say something else and lo and behold he was able to do that and now he's written a book uh, it, it's tragic because his love for his son ultimately caused him to lack moral courage, which is ultimately unloving to his son and to the culture as a whole because he allowed scripture to be compromised. He's creating hurt in the world. Uh, and that's, that's tragic. We cannot... We cannot compromise truth, no matter what. And Paul does not compromise truth. We see in these passages, he is, to, he, is to, he is in the first passage in Acts, he is in a Greek audience who think that resurrection from the dead, and he knows this ahead of time, is the stupidest thing that anybody's ever heard. That, that, that the whole goal of life in the Greek mind was to be free from the confines of the flesh and to be f- into the spirit world. And Paul comes back and says, he's preaching to them, you know, the hope of life is that you repent uh, 
and believe in the resurrection of Jesus, knowing that's going to be the foolish thing that they've ever heard, he still goes in and preaches that truth. And in the Corinthians passage, Paul is saying that he is, he is going out of his way to make the gospel understandable, but he's doing it for the sake of the gospel. He says, right before, he says we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And the biggest obstacle that we can put in the way of the gospel and of Christ is to compromise the truth in our desire to reach the world. It is a constant danger. We always have to be aware of. Any of us, any of us can, anybody can do this because you have people that you love. You have people that you truly care about. I mean, it's a constant, it's a constant danger. Uh, we're constantly, we have a fear of how we're going to be perceived. We have a fear about how people are going to respond to something that we know they're going to think is foolish and therefore we think we're foolish. And so it's something that we have to constantly be on guard against that we cannot compromise the truth because it is unloving, because it does create harm and because the one, the, it is the one thing we can for sure do to put an obstacle in the way of Christ and gospel. But without compromise, the church is called to contextualize the gospel to our culture, the second part. On the other hand, we can go like, we can go way over to the other side, which is what, we, which, which is what people do, which is what the church does. My, one of my favorite things about studying church history is looking at it on paper and you see like throughout time there's this position and then this alternate position and then this position and then this alternate position and then this position as you go through time. And if you put a pendulum in there, you would see that the course of church history and the ideas of theological belief go back and forth like this pendulum as people swing from one extreme to another, only hitting balance like as the pendulum swings through the middle. It's like we're like, balance, there it was. Balance, we'll, we'll get it again in another hundred years. All that to say, on this side we can err by compromising the truth to people and we can go on all the way on the other side and make the truth inaccessible. There are, we've talked about this before, famous pictures of uh, African missionary, Western missionaries in Africa in the 19th century coming in and setting up missions with barges going up ridge, rivers carrying giant pipe organs and all wearing Victorian clothing and pictures of the mission and all the people in the church of all African people like dressed up to the tilt and, and Victorian clothing and top hats and the whole nine because it never crossed their minds that Western cultural sensibilities and values were not part and parcel with Christianity. And you know what happened? Most of those missions failed. Most of those missions failed. Uh, on the other hand, there was Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor uh, was, was, he, he was in a mission, inland, the inland mission to China, where he said, let's, I'm going to, he, he would dress in local Chinese clothing. He grew his hair long. He grew, a, he, 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 he made himself integrate into that culture. He, he, he was 
steadfast and studious to figure out every single cultural barricade and obstacle that I hold on to because it's comfy for me, and he got rid of it in order to assume the cultural sensibilities of the Chinese, and his mission was successful because it's super important. He didn't compromise what he taught. He didn't compromise the gospel. He didn't compromise worship. But he did it in a way that people could understand. And we laugh at that. We laugh at the idea of hauling a pipe organ you know, a thousand miles across the globe to get into the interior of Africa because you have to have a pipe organ for Christian worship. We laugh at that, and yet... It may seem foolish to us now, and yet, there's a paper by one of our pastors, Tim Keller, and he, uh, in the paper, he cites a book by Mark Knoll called America's God, where he points out that 19th century American Presbyterianism was so highly influenced by the secular philosophy of the day uh, and the cultural sensibilities of the time that we have taken a lot of that with us into the present and have baptized it. And, say this, and, and said, this is biblical. This is how we must do these things. Uh, and in fact, they're not. They're cultural preferences. They're cultural sensibilities that stand in the way of people in 21st century San Diego coming in and being able to relate to what we're doing in the gospel and worship. And then worse, people put moral significance upon those cultural preferences and use it as a means to condemn brothers who do things differently. Well, we can't do that. And Paul did not do that. Paul, an ancient Near Eastern Jew. Think about, I mean, we have like cultural differences. Ancient Near Eastern Jew, from the minute he was born... He was like taught that he was set apart and different and better than and special and that everything that he did and everything that the Jews did were the right way to approach God and the only way to approach God. And yet in his preaching of the gospel, when he went into different cultures and different settings, he was totally, because he understood what he had received in Jesus, was able to, he was able to say, I throw all that stuff off me as if it was rubbish except he didn't really say rubbish. I throw it all off me as worthless because of the riches that I have in Jesus. And because of that, it freed him to go into both the synagogue and the marketplace and the Areopagus and wherever uh, and bring the gospel in a way that's understandable. Listen, I'm going to just run through real quick the differences between Paul's preaching to the Jews and Paul's preaching to the Greeks in the Areopagus. When Paul would show up earlier in the book of Acts, he'd come to the synagogue, he'd start out with these heavy, uh, academic, deep theological uh, uh, citations from Torah. He's uh, from Torah and from the Old Testament. Uh, assuming everybody knew that because in the synagogue they did. He's famous, Paul is famous for writing these tapestries of Old Testament quotations, 10 in a row, that all fit together from different parts of the Bible out of his mind because he had memorized the Torah, could just pull these things out and construct this lengthy argument from the Old Testament. And he's presenting that stuff to Jews. Why? Because they understood it. They got it. And we went to the Gentiles, when he went to the Areopagus, when he went to the Greeks, totally different. There's no Old Testament tapestries. There's no deep 
academic theology. He starts with basics. You don't know God. I do. I want to share him with you. You uh, actually admit that you don't know God. The God that you don't know, I'm going to present to you. He starts with creation. And then from creation, he moves on to the character attributes of God, what God must be if he's God. And if that's true, then, uh, and, and even, uh, uh, then, uh, then the way you're worshiping him is obviously wrong. So let's get it together. And then not only that, he uses, listen to this, he uses pagan poetry and pagan sources to make his points about God. Not from Torah. When he says, in him we live and move and have our being, probably from a philosopher named uh, Epimenides. It was also just a common Greek thought. That, that thought and that line was in so many Greek, uh, so many Greek pagan uh, philosophical treatises that it's possible that he just pulled that out as just a common Greek understanding of the world. But he even the next thing he says, he sets it up. Even one of your own poets says, we are his offspring. That's from that's a, a guy named Aratus. Uh, he wrote that in a hymn to Jupiter. A hymn to Jupiter that Paul knew from his Greek education. He's like, actually what he's saying about Jupiter, what he's saying about Jupiter in there is actually true about God. And he pulls it out and he uses that what is culturally familiar to these people to get across the truth of the gospel. From there, he moves into truth. Repent. Jesus' resurrection life. And that tells us something about how we should approach our culture. (laughs) I just posted uh, a quote from uh, one of our professors Robert Godfrey, he said, the besetting sin of the Reformed is to turn the sanctuary into the classroom and the sermon into the lecture. Why do we do that? Because Presbyterians were all about thinking, Presbyterianism tends to bring in people that are very thoughtful about the faith, who've been educated, who've read a lot, and we are comfy at this high level of academic theology in service but what happens when we do that it's just for us it's our holy huddle and anybody else who isn't at that level comes in they have no idea what we're saying and I mean no idea I know this because we used to do that when we started this church it, we did, even knowing that principle and not wanting to do it we still ended up like charging into sermons I one of the 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 first sermon I gave in the book of Ecclesiastes, my introductory illustration was how the French existentialist philosopher Albert Camus used the Greek myth of Sisyphus to express absurdity in the world and how that was equated to how Kohelet, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, viewed the word vanity. Yeah? Big dog, right? I mean, I, you know, I was like, yes. And most of the people are like, what? What? So we learned the hard way, man. We learned the hard way about that. And we're trying to clean up our act and to realize that we, uh, that we want to speak to all people and make the beauty of the gospel 
uh, of the freedom of Christ as understandable as we can. Uh, Paul also finds these connections of things that are familiar to them as he speaks to them, which shows us that we should we should know culture as well as or better than it knows itself so that we could think about how to intersect with them in, 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 in a style that is understandable. Um, we can be all about like the beauty and the theological richness of hymns uh, and, and the melodic structures and the syncopation of the hymns and the four-part harmony and we can be like, wow, that's so beautiful uh, because we have like been inoculated that or taught it or had a long learning curve but other people come in from outside and they're like it's so different from the music that they sing from the music that is that they're used to it's so very different that it's an it's it creates a blockade it's an obstacle now i'm not saying we shouldn't do those hymns we absolutely should but we should mix them make them understandable and encourage and teach people uh, while also bringing in elements that are familiar so people can connect. In Corinthians are the attitudes that Paul uses. He says, he goes, look, I have become like all these different types of people, meaning that he's removing all unnecessary obstacles to the gospel. He's, listen, he starts this whole thing, that whole section off by saying, He's saying, I have all freedom, and yet I've chosen to use all of my freedom to be a servant to all people. That's the principle that we're called to. Um, that's the principle. To be a servant sometimes means stepping out of your comfort zone. Sometimes means thinking about how to do things that include other people in the points of access that people come into the church. Oh, it's astonishing. I've taken, I have, I have, know that I'm totally free in Jesus. And yet I choose to use that freedom to be a servant to all. I'm willingly placing myself as a servant to all. How can we serve people that are coming in? How can we serve the broader church uh, that's falling into disarray how can we serve churches that have fallen off the map? How can we serve the broader culture and the ideals that they, and the, the, the worldview that they swim in every day? How do we think of ways to present worship, to present preaching, to present teaching, to present acts of mercy and service in the world? All those things, how can we intersect with where the people that God has called us to minister are? <sighs> And so call for those who are Jews, Jewish religious sensibilities and cultural values. For those who are Gentiles, outside the law, Gentile, religious sensibilities, cultural values, neutral cultural values. Uh, and to the weak, I think this is my favorite part. Hard to say who he means there. He may mean sociopolitically. He may mean the weak, the poor, the outcast of society. Or he may mean sinners, which would be the whole church of Corinth. So on the one hand, he's saying we need as the church to identify with and be with uh, the weak. And he presents, he doesn't say I am, he doesn't say I became like the weak. He just says to the weak, I am weak. Showing himself in the same position 
We are poor. We are destitute. We are sinners. We are not shining our own light into the world, but only the light that Jesus has given us and making church a safe place for people who are overrun and broken by sin to come in because we identify. We are exactly the same as you. There's no one here holier than someone else. We all have the same holiness, which is Jesus' righteousness given to us. And we make it safe. So we figure out, who are the people that God has called us to minister to? How do we break down the barriers and cross the gulf to reach them with the beauty of what Christ has given us? And the reason we do that, biggest reason, we contextualize the gospel to our generation because that's what Jesus has done for us. Last year, I preached a sermon about the spread of the gospel around the world. And we really we talked about from, from culture to culture to culture how many physical and cultural and ideological barriers the gospel has had to cross to make it from Jerusalem to San Diego. Astonishing, just astonishing amount of barriers of people, churches, church planners, missionaries having to make themselves uncomfortable to bring the truth into that other culture over and over and over and over again. Some of them being killed, some of them being killed and eaten by the natives, some of them being ostracized, uh, uh, all kinds of hardship and suffering, and all of it began with one ultimate cross-cultural ministry or minister and missionary. Let me read you his story. This is from Philippians chapter 2. Paul is encouraging us again, the same thing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God the thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus crossed the barrier of the unseen world into the, se- into the seen world. He crossed the barrier from being God to taking on human flesh. Think about that barrier. He crossed the barrier of sin and brought us reconciliation with the Father. He crossed the barrier of death by his death on the cross, through the grave, and into resurrection, all to bring us life. The reason why any of us are here today is because Jesus has done that for us. Jesus has died to bring us life and it set in motion a chain reaction of 50 generations of missionaries who have held on tenaciously to truth without compromise and yet have made made that truth uh, understandable and culturally legible to the people group that God has called them to and we have an obligation to do the same to the people that God has called us to minister to. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you uh, first and foremost that you did cross 
the greatest gulf. Lord, all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame is erased. You've driven it away as far as the east is from the west. You've not remembered it. And you've made us holy and righteous in Jesus. Because you came from heaven to earth to save us. We pray, Lord, that we'd be just so overjoyed with that. And in the midst of our trouble, that even in our troubled spirits, even as things go wrong in the world, even as things, real things are upsetting, real things cause real distress, real hardship we face in the world. And you would strengthen us to know our future and our hope, who we truly are and what is really true about us and where we're going. And Lord, in the midst of that, we pray that we would use all of that, our hardships and the knowledge of who we belong to and the knowledge of the gospel to minister to the people of San Diego that you've called us to minister to, Lord. Help us to hold on to all of the beautiful things that the history of the church has pulled out of the Bible about worship, about theology. Help us to hold fast to that, but to make it understandable, Lord by the power of your spirit, for the glory of Christ, and for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.